Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Basement and the final month of filming sermons without people around me in front of a camera. The final month of me sitting between this lamp and this plant. Thank you, Jesus. I am so excited to get back into church together. Uh, You might notice that this plant looks a little bit fuller. It's different than the one that was there last week. That's because the previous plant started to die and wither away, kind of like my soul every time I stared into this camera and I was not around my church family. Uh, But we've replaced it with a new one and my soul is healthy. All is good. Um, Hey, today we're going to jump into a brand new series and a series that we've been planning now for a couple of weeks, but honestly, we didn't realize how relevant it was going to be in light of all that we're facing right now as a nation. Um, And so I'm pretty excited to dive into this because I really do think it's going to be one of the most important series we've ever done as a church. Um, We are calling this series Vintage Church, a model for our modern world. And we're going to be taking a look at the book of Acts, chapters 1 and 2, as the New Testament church is birthed. And we're going to kind of do a compare and contrast, see how the early church looks to the church today, globally. And if we see some disparities, if we see some things that need to be adjusted, we're going to give the Holy Spirit permission to adjust us accordingly so that we can look a little bit closer to the model, the vintage church. Uh, I love that word. I love the word vintage not just because it's kind of like, you know, hipster and cool, uh, but because I love the definition. And I think it's an, a definition that we need to embrace and embody in this season. The definition for the word vintage is denoting something of high quality, containing the characteristics of the best period of someone or something's work. I love that. High quality, the best period of someone or something's work. Uh, That is to say, if you want something in its purest form, if you want to see something the way it should be, you have to go back to the vintage. Honestly, sometimes the older stuff is just better. Can I get a witness? Come on, some of my older folks. Hallelujah. Yeah, sometimes the older is just better. I'm one of those guys that that thinks older homes are better than newer homes. They have so much more character than the the newer track homes that you see in certain subdivisions. That's one of the reasons I love San Francisco, the architecture. It's just so characteristic. It's beautiful. And even the, the furniture that we begin to put inside of those homes, you know, a lot of the stuff we put inside our house, our houses today, the it's mid-mod. It's really just 50s, 60s, 70s furniture all over again. And honestly, the old stuff was built a whole lot better than the stuff that you pick up at Ikea. Sorry if you have Ikea in your house. But what about music? Don't even get me started on music. Gosh, the older stuff is so much better than the newer stuff, right? Like 80s rock and roll, 90s R&B, so much better than the stuff that we're listening to today. Give me a little Boys to Men, some some KC and JoJo, a little Bon Jovi, a little Quiet Riot. That's music, not this trancy computer stuff that we're listening to today. And if you ask someone who's 20 or 30 years older than me, they'll probably tell you, oh, it's that, even that stuff's too new. You know, go, go back to the Beatles and, and the Beach Boys. You know, the, the older is always better. Uh, but perhaps the, the place where we hear this term vintage most often is in the world of wine. Uh, even if you're not a wine drinker, most people understand that, generally speaking, the older wine is better than the newer wine. Uh, Robin and I, we are, we are wine drinkers. Yes, we do enjoy the occasional bottle of wine. I'm sorry if that offends you, but we might as well just get that on the table now so that if you're looking for a dry pastor to lead you, you can, you know, make your way to another church right now. <laughs> sorry, but I'm just trying to be like Jesus. You know, Jesus drank wine. That's, 
that's my, that's my job, trying to be a little bit more like Jesus. But Robin and I do enjoy the occasional bottle of wine. And uh, we've got a little collection of, of bottles at the house, and uh, we found some stuff that we really enjoy. And last year, we found a particular bottle that rated really, really well, and it was priced really, really well. And so we stocked up on some of it because it was kind of your midweek. If you're going to have a steak, you know, you don't want to open a really expensive bottle. Like, this was a good staple wine to have in the collection. And we enjoyed it, and it was great, but eventually we ran out. And so a couple of weeks ago, uh, I went to the store, and I picked up a couple of more bottles of that wine. But I noticed as I was picking it up off the shelf that it was a younger vintage than the one we were accustomed to drinking. It was a little bit newer. I didn't think much of it and went home and cracked a bottle open a week and a half ago or so and poured a few glasses for my wife and I. And as we started to drink it, we realized, oh my gosh, this, this newer wine doesn't taste anything like the previous vintage. It wasn't as full-bodied. It didn't have the same flavor profiles. It was pretty one-dimensional. And so we just kind of left it out for an hour or so, let it breathe in hopes that it might start to taste a little bit better. But even when we came back to it and we took a sip, it was still kind of flat, still not very fruit-forward. It was, it was just kind of this, ah, it doesn't quite taste as good. See, the, the old was better than the new, And I wonder if that could be said about the church, the church at large, not just the Father's house, but the church, the bride of Christ on the earth. I wonder if the older version might taste a little bit better than the newer version. I wonder if some of the New Testament apostles, if Peter or Paul or John cruised into one of our churches, if got a little sip of what they they were used to experiencing, if they wouldn't say, man, you know, this this tastes kind of like church, but if I'm being honest, it doesn't quite taste as good as the original. And now, to be clear, I'm not talking about methods, okay? Like, church methods can change over time. I'm not one of those, you know, weird purists who's like, okay, we got to get rid of all the electric guitars and get rid of the lights and get rid of the smoke and let's light candles and sing kumbaya around a fire. Like, I'm not that dude. Honestly, Paul probably would have enjoyed a good smoke machine, some moving lights, and a shredding lead solo. I'm sure he would have enjoyed that expression of church. I'm not talking about the way the church looks. I'm talking about how it tastes. The methods might change, but the model is sacred. And I really think that we find ourselves in a time in history where we need to go back and consider the model. That's why we subtitled this series, Vintage Church, a model for our modern world. I wonder if our church truly looks like the model, the template that was set for us in the early church in the book of Acts. And so we're gonna take a look at that in the coming weeks. Uh, We're gonna look at our key scripture this morning. It's in the book of Acts, chapter two, verse 42. And as we go to that scripture today, let me issue just a brief challenge to all of us as we begin this journey into discussing and discovering what the vintage church looked like. There will be some temptations in the weeks to come to dismiss personal responsibility as it pertains to the church, to begin to point the finger from the comfort of our armchairs and say, that's right, that's what the church looks like, and the church needs to change, and the church this and the church that. But I would remind all of us today that the church is made up of people, you and me and others that are sitting in our living rooms right now. We are the church. And so if there are some things that need to be adjusted, we can't look at the church holistically and point this general finger at people that we don't know. 
No, we need to look at ourselves. We need to look in the mirror. And if things need to change, then we need to change. So I invite you to allow this series in the next couple of weeks to be as personal as it needs to be for you so that change can come about not just in our lives, but in our lives as they relate to the church. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Here's what it says. Every believer was faithfully devoted to following the teachings of the apostles. Their hearts were mutually linked to one another, sharing communion and coming together regularly for prayer. A deep sense of holy awe swept over everyone, and the apostles performed many miracles, signs, and wonders. All the believers were in fellowship as one body, and they shared with one another whatever they had. Out of generosity, they even sold their assets to distribute the proceeds to those who were in need among them. Daily, they met together in the temple courts and in one another's homes to celebrate communion. They shared meals together with joyful hearts and generosity. They were continually filled with praises to God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord kept adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, in those six verses, there are four key attributes that we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks, four things that made the church the church. But before we get into those four, I want to take the entirety of this week's message, and I want to focus on kind of this overarching characteristic, this overarching DNA that existed in the early church, one that I think is so imperative to the way the church is living and acting right now. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The church started with supernatural unity. The church started with supernatural unity. Come back with me to the key text here for just a moment because I want to take a look at something that maybe isn't discussed as often when we talk about the birth of the New Testament church. Back in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, let me highlight a couple of phrases to you here. It says, Their hearts were mutually linked to one another, sharing communion and coming together regularly for prayer. All the believers were in fellowship as one body, and they shared with one another whatever they had. They met together in the temple courts and in one another's homes to celebrate communion. They shared meals together with joyful hearts and generosity. Are you seeing the theme here? Are you seeing this pattern? There was this, this existing unity in the New Testament church. They came together as one people. There was this supernatural display of unity that hadn't been seen anywhere else in the known world. And you might say, okay, well, that doesn't seem like supernatural unity. By definition of supernatural, it has to be something that is impossible to accomplish in our human flesh. And, you know, they shared some meals together and they hung out a lot, but people do that all the time. People gather around common interests, common goals, common social circles, common upbringings. People do that all the time, all around our world. That's communal. That's normal. That's not supernatural. But a, a quick, closer look at who was involved, who participated in this birthing of the church, would show us very quickly that these people had nothing in common. Very few of them even spoke the same language, much less had the same set of convictions or came from the same framework of existence. Let me show you what I mean. As we look back to the book of Acts chapter 1 and leading up to verse 42 in chapter 2, we see kind of this backdrop of the church. Let me give you kind of a picture of what's going on. Jesus has just ascended. He told his disciples to go into Jerusalem and to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, go and wait in Jerusalem. You're going to receive power and you're going to be my witnesses all around the world. 
So these New Testament disciples, they they go to Jerusalem and they begin to wait for this promised power, this promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, which was 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, consequently the holiday that was celebrated just last weekend, as they're sitting there on the day of Pentecost in this upper room, 120 of them gathered together, praying and calling out to God, the Holy Spirit falls on that room in such a way that cloven tongues of fire appear above each and every one of their heads, and they begin to speak in other tongues, unknown languages, as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. It was this supernatural moment. And Peter stands up in the midst of this moment, and he begins to to preach the gospel to this massive crowd that had gathered around him. And that day, 3,000 people were added to the body of Christ. It's this supernatural display of power, this supernatural display of witness, and this idea of of praying in unknown languages. And usually when we talk about Pentecost and we talk about the birthing of the New Testament church, those are the three things we talk about. In fact, I've preached messages about them at our church. Talk about power. We talk about tongues. We talk about the fact that it was given to us so that we can be a witness. But what we don't talk about very often is this supernatural display of unity that took place in this moment. Look at what it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 6. You begin to get this beautiful picture of what God is doing as he's bringing all of these people together. It says, when they heard the loud noise, that is, the people praying in tongues, everyone in the city came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people uh, are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Cretans, and Arabs. We all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. Sorry if I mispronounced any of those nations. This this was the audience that was present when Peter began to preach the gospel for the first time at this birthing of the church, this eclectic group of people. And these were not 3,000 people that were added to the church who were all from the same place, spoke the same language, thought the same way. No, these were Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia. I mean, they were from all over the place. They had different languages, different customs. They came from different backgrounds. And guess what? They had different shades of skin color. Yeah, they were all over the map. And yet, people from all nations, all tongues, all tribes, they find themselves in this one place at a very specific time in history. And when the Holy Spirit is poured out and the New Testament church is birthed, there is this display of supernatural unity, something that could have never taken place in the natural. And the phrase that Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, gives to to describe this new gathering of believers and the phrase that we'll begin to find all throughout the New Testament to describe the church is that they became one body. He says in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, that all the believers were in fellowship as one body. I want to focus for the remainder of our time together on that phrase, this phrase, one body, because I think it has some pretty drastic implications on the climate and the culture we find ourselves in right now, especially as it pertains to racism and injustice and prejudice and all the things that we are seeing played out in the world around us right now. 
We are supposed to be one body. Jesus's heart for his church has always been that it would display something that the natural world could not display, that it would be an awe and a wonder in the midst of a culture, that when people looked at the church, they saw something that would be impossible in the natural, namely unity, namely this idea that people from all different walks of life from all different experiences, could gather together around one singular name, the name of Jesus. Jesus prayed before he left the planet. He said, Father, I pray that our disciples would be one just as you and I are one. That was his, one of his biggest prayers for us as the church because he said, if we are unified, we display the love of Jesus to a broken and hurting world. We have always been called to live with unity, this one body expression. And Paul begins to unpack that for us a little bit more in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, a scripture that probably many of you have heard before, but one that I wanna, I wanna tap into a little bit for a couple moments because I think it will help us, help us understand what we're walking through perhaps a little bit more. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, the human body has many parts, but the many parts, they make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews and some of us are Gentiles. Pause there. That would be the equivalent of saying some of us are white and some of us are black. Some of us are Mexicans and some of us are Asians. Those, those were two very racial terms in their day. I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago in a devotional that we did. We called it Root Out Racism. I really encourage you to go back and listen to that. We can unpack that a little bit more. But this was a very racial statement. And what he's saying is these two races, they were brought together as one body. Then he says, but we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit and we all share the same spirit. If one part suffers, all parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. Paul says right here, red, yellow, black, white, as the old kid's song used to suggest, we are all together, we are all unified. We are one body and we are one spirit. And if one part of the body is suffering, then the entirety of the body suffers. Allow me to make this a little bit more personal, as I promised we should do during the course of this series at the beginning of this sermon. The word that Paul uses here for spirit in the Greek is the word pneuma, and it means breath. From the nose or from the mouth, breath. The breath of God is what filled and fell on the disciples on the day of Pentecost. He says that we've been united by one breath, one spirit. You know what that tells me? If we've been united around one breath, and that means if one part of the body is saying, I can't breathe right now, then the whole body should be saying, I can't breathe right now. If one part of the body is suffocating, if one part of the body feels like it's being choked out, then the rest of the body does not have the luxury to ignore or to dismiss it. The rest of the body must embrace it and say, if you can't breathe, then I can't breathe either. Listen, I don't know what it's like to be a black man or a black woman for that matter. I'm not black. I know that might be shocking. And since I'm not black, I, I, cannot, I cannot consider to understand what so many of our black brothers and sisters are walking through right now. I do not know what that feels like. But just because I don't know what it feels like does not mean that I can dismiss it. If we are the same body, if we are one, 
and someone is suffering, then I must suffer with them. I can't say that's not been my experience and so it doesn't exist or it's not important. That's not what a body does. If one part of the body is feeling pain, the rest of the body has to acknowledge it. I mean, think about your own body for just a moment. I mean, if you, if you took a hammer and you smashed your left hand with a hammer and your hand was broken and it was bleeding and it was bruised, your right hand wouldn't be like, eh, you know, not a big deal, no issue. I mean, it's hurting, but you know, I'm not hurting, so eh, it's fine, we'll deal with it. Of course not. If one of your hands was broken and destroyed, then you would acknowledge it with the entirety of your body. That's what a body does. And I don't think that any of us would debate that right now. I don't think that we would debate the idea that we should be unified as one body. It's right there in the Bible, like it's clear. We should, we should mourn with those who mourn. We should hurt with those who hurt. We should be united around this pain together. But here's where I think we've divided. Here's where I think maybe the church has gotten some things wrong and I'm not gonna shy away from the conversation. I think we've divided in our response in understanding how as a, as a singular body, as the church of Jesus Christ, we should respond to the fact that there's a part of our body that is hurting right now. How do we respond to this? That's a, that's a question I've been asking a lot lately. It's a question that a lot of people have assumed that they should answer for us as a church. A lot of people call, email, text, and many are saying that we're not responding enough Others are saying that we're responding uh, way too much. Everybody is asking the church, whether they realize it or not, to pick a side right now, which is a ridiculous thought. A body can't pick a side. A body either is divided or it's united, period. There's no in-between. It doesn't get to choose left or right where it's going to go. So I've been wrestling with this so much over the last couple of weeks. Like, how do we as Christians, how do we as the body of Christ respond to what we're seeing played out all around us right now? And as I've wrestled with that question and as I've brought it to God over and over and over again, I wanna give you what I consider to be two very simple thoughts, very simple applications, simple ways that we should respond right now so that we can be united as the body of Christ is supposed to be. Number one, I think our first response is that we need to check our hearts. You need to check your heart. I need to check my heart. You know, we've talked a lot about this over the last six months, and we've run series around it and brought it up in different sermons, but the heart is so vitally important to the way we live our lives. Whatever we allow into our hearts ultimately manifests itself in our actions. The condition of the heart is so, so important. And I think we find ourselves in a season right now where we need to be gut honest with ourselves. We need to search our hearts and ask the honest question, is there racism in my heart? Is there prejudice in my heart? Are there seeds of things that simply do not belong in the heart right now? And if there are, we need to be aggressive about rooting those things out. David prayed in, in Psalm chapter 139. He said, God, search me, know me, try me, see if there's anything wicked on the inside of me, just point it out so that I can walk in the way everlasting. I think that is a vitally important prayer for every believer to cry out right now. God, Show me what's going on in my heart. Because listen, and I know that this might rub some people the wrong way, racism is a heart issue. Racism is not a systemic issue. People have used that phrase over and over and over again. It is not a systemic issue. It is a heart issue. By definition, 
Systemic issues are legislated. Laws are created. Systems are put in place to bring about justice so that people are not oppressed. People are not marginalized. That is the purpose of a system. But a system cannot be racist. A system cannot find itself with a heart. Racism is a heart issue. You can't legislate racism out of people's hearts. You can't create laws that root out racism in people's hearts. That is the job of Jesus and Jesus alone. If racism is an issue in our heart, then we need to be focusing on the root cause and not trying to get a system to work to fix the problems of the human heart. If we stand any chance at getting rid of racism in our world, not injustice, injustice is completely different, that is a separate conversation, but racism, then we cannot rely on a system to fix it. For the moment that we get a system to fix it is the moment that somebody else sits in authority over that system with racism in their heart and they suddenly begin to redefine the rules to fit their racist heart. No, this is a heart issue. And if it's a heart issue, we have to bring it to Jesus. We have to check our hearts. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. Let me plead with you. Let me implore you. Check your heart right now. If there's stuff in there that doesn't belong, be honest with God and let God root it out. But once we've checked our hearts, here's the next thing we need to do. We need to take a knee. We need to take a knee. Now, I know that what I'm about to say bears the potential of being extremely offensive, and I'm okay with that. I know that that phrase right now is something that is being used a lot in social media and different platforms, but I'm okay with offending people about what I'm, with what I'm about to say because the next time you consider taking a knee in public, I really do hope that you think about what I'm about to say. Look me straight in the eye. Prayer should be the first response for a Christian, period. Let me say that again. Prayer, hitting our knees, should be the first response for a Christian. Let me tell you what I did not just say. I did not just say prayer should be the only response for a Christian. I did not just say that petitioning legislators or protesting or posting or providing for organizations that are bringing about change I didn't say that any of those things are wrong. I did not say that they do not serve their, pur- their purpose in bringing about justice. Here's what I said. I said prayer should be the first response for the Christian. I am sick and tired of hearing people criticize Christians for saying they're going to pray. I am sick and tired of hearing from people, even in our own family, who are telling us that prayer is not enough as if prayer is some excuse for inaction or prayer is just some convenient cop-out so that we don't have to do the real work. Listen, I understand that people are hurting and I understand that people are sensitive, but prayer should be our first response. Don't come out of church and say, oh, are you gonna go to your cute little prayer meeting? Okay, you guys go over there and do your cute little prayer thing. We're gonna do the real work of bringing about change. Really? Is that where we're at now? Is that where the body of Christ has arrived? This place where we devalue the power of prayer? Are you really gonna tell me that if all 100 million of the people in the United States who claim to be followers of Jesus linked arms and they prayed for change in our nation, they called out unto God that it would not change? Do we really believe that? 
If so, how sad. How sad that we've arrived at this place where we've removed prayer from our response. Listen, prayer moves mountains. Prayer changes nations. Prayer demolishes strongholds and tears down walls. And it was a prayer meeting where the Holy Spirit fell in power on the day of Pentecost and gave breath to the New Testament church. Prayer should be the first response of a believer. If you have arrived at a place in your Christianity where you think protesting has more power than prayer, then you need to repent. You are not an activist before you are a Christian. And if you have arrived at a place where you think that posting is the greatest thing you can do and you're not praying, then you need to repent and get on your knees and put your phone down and cry out to the God of heaven for change in this place. Prayer should be the first response of a believer. Prayer is the most powerful weapon we can wield right now. And to devalue prayer is to remove the very power of Jesus to bring about change that all of us so desperately need. We must be people of prayer. Honestly, I think if we would do these two things, if we would simply search our hearts and we'd get on our knees, I think that God would use us to display to a very broken world what unity, what diversity, what standing together in solidarity is really supposed to look like. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.